Well, if you have a copy of God's Word, go ahead and open it to the book of Matthew. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 6 is where we're going to be this morning. Matthew chapter 6. Uh, Matthew chapter 6 is, uh, believe it or not, right before Matthew chapter 7. And Matthew chapter 7 contains a verse of Scripture that you probably know pretty well. It's actually oftentimes misrepresented and taken out of context, but it's the passage in chapter 7 that talks about judging others. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Don't judge other people, right? And so Matthew chapter 7, what that passage means, don't judge others, it doesn't mean don't tell someone they're doing something wrong. What it means is uh, well, what, what, it, but what it doesn't mean is don't judge the eternity of another. Don't judge somebody's church attendance, whatever this, that, that. What it means is if you got sin in your life, don't point out theirs, okay? If you got major problems in this area, don't speak on that area. And, and the analogy that Jesus uses is don't point out the speck in their eye when you have a plank in your own. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? Don't point out the little problem there if you got a big problem is what that passage means. Now listen, I'm going to say this clearly. There's an aspect of that plank and speck conversation that is prevalent every time I preach, okay? To suggest that I have figured out whatever it is that's the subject of this message is just wrong, okay? Every pastor you've ever heard preach has a plank, okay, about everything. Because no one on this earth has ever shepherded or, or pastored perfectly. No one on this earth has ever lived perfectly save one, and it's Jesus the Christ, now, I say that to say this. I feel especially unfit to preach this sermon. There's an aspect of that every Sunday. Today's different. I feel especially unfit to preach this sermon. So everything that you hear after me say this, I want you to know I need it badly. I need it badly. And I'm going to say some things. Just like I did last week, I said some things. Some of you guys were like, hey, take it easy, all right? This Sunday's going to be no different than that. There's going to be things that we need to hear that we need to be faced with. It's humbling for me even to suggest that prayer is not just one of our core commitments, but as you see behind me, that it's our lifeline. It's humbling to consider that with how little maybe we visit the lifeline. There are a couple of ways that that word can be used, lifeline. You guys ever watch Who Wants to Be a Millionaire when you're younger, maybe? A little bit younger? You guys remember Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? It was a huge fad back in, like, the turn of the millennium. Regis Philbin was the host. Do you guys remember this? Nod, please, if you know what I'm talking about. Otherwise, this is really going to fall flat. Um, on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, they're given three what? They're given three lifelines. And so when I hear the word lifeline, that's actually the first thing that comes to mind. You may think of your career as the lifeguard or something important. I don't. I think of this TV show, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? And specifically, when I think of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, when I think about a lifeline, I think about what a lifeline was in that show. And what was a lifeline in that show? It was an emergency that you look to. You say, I've got an emergency that has risen, so I need to go to the lifeline. Otherwise, I got this. And that was the gist of it, right? I know the answer to this one. I know the answer to this one. I know this problem, this problem, this problem. But wait a second. I need my lifeline. I'm in an emergency situation. This is not what I mean when I say that prayer is our lifeline. Better understood, it's something regarded as indispensable for the maintaining and protection of life. Indispensable for the maintaining and protection of life. A better analogy that I would say for a lifeline, you guys ever watch movies that take place in outer space? Anyone ever been to outer space? Sorry, that didn't 
was it going to have? So I had to go on movies here, right? In, in movies or TV shows that talk about being in outer space, if an astronaut goes outside of the ship, what do they have connected to them? A lifeline. They have a rope that's connected to them, and I don't know what that rope is made of, but I'm guessing it's pretty durable because outer space is not somewhere that I want to be without connectivity to that which gives me life. They do spacewalks with ropes connected to them, and I love space movies, but they always stress me out because floating off into the abyss is different than floating away from your boat in the, in the, floating away from your boat in the Okativi. I always have a hard time with the name of that lake. It's different, right? Because you can just swim back. In fact, you can float for a while. It's not like space. Space is an environment that is not designed for the safety of human beings. There's no oxygen, there's no gravity, except connectivity to the lifeline. And we're fools to approach prayer like a who-wants-to-be-a-millionaire lifeline. I got this. Uh-oh, here's a problem. I'm going to need to phone a friend on this one. Rather, listen, church, we are astronauts in the abyss. We are a God-infused virus in a world of godless antibodies. This world is not safe space, even on your best days. You need your lifeline. Prayer. That which tethers you to the anchor, the source of life, your Father. I'm going to emphasize that word big today. Your Father. Let's see it. Matthew chapter 6. I'm going to start in verse 5 and read through verse 13. We're mainly going to focus on verses 9 through 13, the Lord's Prayer, as it were. Okay? Chapter 6, starting in verse 5, says this. And when you pray, Jesus is giving the Sermon on the Mount. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in their synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, pray to your Father who's in secret, and your Father who's who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you even ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. <clears throat> the Lord's Prayer is often misunderstood, and you may think your, your fondest memory of the Lord's Prayer may be a football locker room or something like that that isn't really a place similar to this one. And so I want to look at this because I, I can't think of a better guide, a more Jesus-centered way to pray than looking at Jesus' model prayer, all right? Many people understand, misunderstand the Lord's Prayer. They think, are we supposed to recite it word for word, or is it some sort of magic formula? If you say these specific words, they have some specific power or influence over God. We have to say it this way and no other way. Maybe even you're offended by the fact that I read it apart from the King James way of reading it, right? You have to say it this way. These are the magic words. But Jesus did not say, check this out. Jesus did not say, pray this prayer. You know that? He did not say, pray this prayer. He said, pray like this. Not pray exactly this way. He said, pray like this. How long did it take me to read that? I timed it before we got here, 18 seconds. It takes 18 seconds to read the, read the Lord's Prayer. But guess what? Jesus prayed for hours at a time. Hours. You think that he was just reciting over and over these 18 seconds? No. He says, pray like this. 
It's clear that the Lord's Prayer should be understood as an example, a pattern of how to pray. It gives us, in other words, the ingredients that should go into our prayer life. It falls in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. He's addressing his disciples in this three-chapter sermon in the book of Matthew. He starts out not to pray, which is why we started in verse 5. The Pharisees that he's talking about, the ones that prayed loudly and showy, wanted to be seen, they were guilty of, notoriously guilty of being hypocrites. Do you know that the word, the etymology, sort of the root um, origin of the word hypocrite is in uh, acting, drama. In the Greek world, that word hypocrite means actor. And the reason they take it from that is that literally that word means hypocrite would be an interpreter from underneath. You may, like the underworld? No, it's not like that. They were underneath masks. You see maybe where this is going. There are these big displayed masks, but there was an actor underneath that was sort of wearing the mask and wanted to be seen a certain way. So it was, it was sort of coming from underneath to make things look a certain way that aren't that way. You see, Pharisees were guilty of teaching one thing and doing another, which is what a hypocrite would be. They projected a lifestyle of religion, but only for onlooking peers. Jesus referred to them later as whitewashed tombs, nice and clean on the outside, but full of decay on the inside, putting on a show. They prayed to be seen by men, and Jesus all of a sudden stumbles on the scene, and he says, don't pray like your rabbis, which is crazy. Don't listen to your rabbis when it comes to prayer. He says, instead, listen to me. Don't pray merely with your voice, Pray with your heart, is what he's saying. In the Sermon on the Mount, which I said is three chapters, Matthew 5 through chapter 7, 15 times Jesus refers to your Father. So he says, your Father, your Heavenly Father. 15 times he refers to your Father. One time he refers to our Father. Right here in the Lord's Prayer. And so, in light of that, I mean, if he says it 16 times total, in, in a three-chapter prayer, I think that that's probably pretty important for us. I was skimming, I was like, Father, 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 Father. I think that that's an important word for us to dwell on, and I would suggest to you that it is the frame upon which your prayer life must stand, that he is your Father. So I've got five things that I'm gonna leave with you guys today if you're writing things down, taking notes. We're gonna see sort of these essentials when it comes to prayer with our Father. Number one is that prayer is paternal. Obviously, he's our Father, right? Prayer is paternal. It means that it's of fatherhood. Prayer is paternal must be paternal. The foundation of this Sermon on the Mount, the foundation of this prayer that Jesus is giving, the foundation of you being able to say when you die that you will be with Jesus in paradise is the fact that only through the saving work of Jesus can you call God that precious name, Father. That's the very foundation of anything that we do in this life, that we can say confidently that God is our Father. It's more than a name. That's a declaration, is it not? I'm His. He's mine. More than a name, it's a declaration. And the declaration, in a word, is this, adoption. It's adoption, which is central, central to the core of the gospel. That we are adopted people. You may think, no, I was born to parents. Oh yes, but your spiritual parents were not parents that you wanted to belong to. You see, the Bible says that when we come into this world, naturally speaking, we're not children of God, but instead we're children of wrath. That doesn't sound very good. Children of wrath, meaning that's our destiny. The wrath of God. In fact, in, in week one of these core commitments that we've been looking at, that's, we talked about that, right? That God is pouring out just wrath on every evildoer. Everybody that falls short of his standard of perfection will receive 
wrath. And it's not because God is hateful, it's because God is just. He's not hateful, it's the opposite, loving. That's why he gave us a way away from the wrath, deliverance and salvation in the name of Jesus. But naturally speaking, we are children not of salvation, not children of God, we're children of wrath. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Then looking to the verse 3, it says, And were by nature children of wrath, <clears throat> like the rest of mankind. The next verse is, by the way, in that passage, going to verse 4, we won't read it, but it says, but God. You know why it says that? Because God changed whose child we were. A few verses, we'll talk about that in a second. But it means that we are grafted into his family, meaning, uh, you guys know what a skin graft is? It's taking skin that doesn't belong on this place and stitching it in and making it suddenly to where it's indistinguishable and it's part of you. That is the gospel, is it not? Is that we are distant, away from God. Sinners falling short of God's glory, apart from his family, and suddenly God has adopted and grafted us in to a family of salvation, restoration, and glory. Gospel. No orphan has ever been adopted that has had the power to tell his or her parents that they're theirs, only by the initiative and reach of the parents. And that's why adoption is so essentially God's work. You're not a child of God because you were born into this world. You're a child of God because you were reborn into Christ. Romans 8.15 says, <clears throat> For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received, listen, the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, this may sound familiar, Abba, Father. It's the, the word that Jesus would use in this prayer, Abba, our Abba, Father. Not the band of Dancing Queen and all those other really good songs. That was a good band, by the way. I won't go there. Galatians 3, 26 says, For in Christ you are all sons of God through faith. John 1, 12, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of, not wrath, God. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 says, For God has destined us, has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. 16 times in this sermon, and perhaps the most central here in chapter 6, Jesus grounds your relationship to God if you've repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus, not in your church attendance, not in your spirituality, not in your behavior, not on your upbringing. He grounds your relationship to God on the fact that he calls you his child. Adoption through faith. And the reason we have to start there is because the skeleton or the frame of your prayer life is the posture of a dependent child and the heart of a loving father. Must be the frame upon which our prayer life stands. We come as dependent children and we come into the arms of a loving heart of a father. Now I want to be sensitive about something. I know from your mouth and just by a size, a room this size, that your experience with that word, Father, may not be great. You may have been born to a man who dragged that term through the mud, who wasn't much of one, who chose not to be one, who you don't even consider to be your father. Perhaps more appropriately, you label him as an abuser an abandoner, a tyrant. And you may say when we come to a passage like this, the idea of God being a father isn't something that really sits right with me. 
And you may be justified in approaching it that way. And I want to be sensitive to that. I know that there are people in this room who really never had a dad, even if you had a dad. Your pain is real, and it is horrific, and what happened to you is evil in the sight of our God. But I want, to hear you say, I want you to hear me say something. It is the clear internal instinct within you that your father wasn't much of one that should tell you that your soul knows what a good and loving father is supposed to look like. The fact that you say he wasn't much of one only tells me that your soul longs for a good one. The fact that you know that he wasn't one tells me that you know what is one. And I'm going to tell you why that instinct is there. Because God put that instinct in you so you'll see that he's everything that no human father could ever perfectly be. Our father loves you. And your experience with that word may be horrible. But our father loves you. And he will never abuse, abandon, or dominate you as a horrible tyrant. Let me tell you a great passage that supports that. The passage of the prodigal son. In Luke chapter 15, verses 20 through 24, the background of that is a son who has really been a jerk to his father, who stole a bunch of money from him, essentially, who wasted all of that money, all of the inheritance that he assumed, he, he demanded immediately, he wasted all of it, dragged the reputation of his family and his father, and then when he had nothing, I mean nothing, he comes sulking and dragging back because he has nowhere else to go this is a parable that jesus used and in luke chapter 15 20 through 24 as he's dreading that return it says and he arose and came to his father but while he was still a long way off his father saw him and felt compassion he had every reason in the world to bring a belt after him he didn't do that he felt compassion he it says ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Bring a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. Why? For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Listen, the parable is very simple. It's very pertinent to what we're talking about today. We cannot copy and paste our earthly experience with a father with our spiritual one. The father's love for you is unwavering and unconditional. Run to him. Remember who is there when you call. When we pray our father, remember who you're talking to. You're not talking to your dad on earth. Even the good ones, they lose their temper. Even the good ones, they don't always have the best advice. I'm speaking from experience. You're speaking to the perfect father. And if you can't get that, you can't get prayer. It is the core, it is the frame upon which our prayer life must stand. The frame is not a distant deity He's a near father who runs out to meet you. We got to get that. That's the lifeline because we're all the prodigal feeling this big as we crawl back to a father who has every reason not to bring a hug but to bring discipline and punishment. And he brings love, a hug, 
because the discipline was poured out at Calvary. Before prayer can be anything, it has to be paternal. The second thing, the next thing, is that prayer must be God-centric, meaning that God is at the center of it. Prayer must first, before it is about your life and about your troubles and about what you got going on, we'll get there, it must first be about the Father. It must be about God and His centrality to everything. I'm four and a half pages into my notes, and we're only two words into this prayer. We'll speed up. But we got to start here and say, God is central to our prayer lives. There's six petitions in this prayer. Look at them real quick, and I'll identify them. He says, one, hallowed be your name. Two, your kingdom come. Three, your will be done. The fourth one is, give us this day our daily bread. The fifth one is, forgive us our debts as we've also forgiven our debtors. The sixth one is, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, I want you to see something. There's three in three petitions. I know I'm going quick here, but we'll go as we get to the, the passage in just a moment. There's three that are up here that are having to do with God's centrality, and there's three that are in here that are having to do with me and you. The three that are here are, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. Give me daily bread. Forgive me of my debts as I forgive my debtors. Lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. So you have six petitions, three here and three here. That's the formula. And remember, the reason I say that and why that's important is Jesus said, pray like this. He gave six petitions. He could have given seven, eight. He could have subtracted one and added a different one, but he gave us these. And so we need to look at each of them and see why he would say these are so important to build our prayer life around. It's worth seeing that the first three have something in common. They aren't about the prayer. They're about the one to whom we pray. And listen, these are not about God because he's forgotten who he is. They're about God because we tend to. Verse 9 starts. It says, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That word is weird. You don't use that word a lot. Halloween. It is the same root word, but we've kind of made that a really weird day, haven't we? Hallowed be your name. We don't hear that word a lot. What it means is honored as holy. Hallowed means honored as holy. There's a movie called Remember the Titans that we saw, I think, 35 times just in high school. Uh, it's a really good movie, and it's, it's got a wonderful message, right? And it's easy to look at that movie and say this is a football movie. It's not a football movie. It's a racial reconciliation movie. There's bigger things that are happening than football, and that is the battle that's happening in the locker room between two schools, a white school and a black school that have been integrated together, and they're really at conflict, and obviously they win a bunch of football games, and that's the story, but the real story is what's happening between the individuals. There's a lot of racial strife in the locker room. In the midst of that racial strife, and sort of the the, the linchpin or the, the tipping point that sends them to really starting to make some ground and, and integrating with one another and, and building some reconciliation, is that they get up in the middle of the night at spring training, and he runs them to Gettysburg. It takes place, I think, in Virginia, right? And so run, runs all the way to Gettysburg, South Carolina, runs to Gettysburg, and it's a long run. They're exhausted. I mean, a long run. And they show up, and the ground is the Battle of Gettysburg, right? It's covered with, with fog, and it looks eerie, and they're panting and sweating. Their shirts are drenched, and they're hunched over like this. Some of them are vomiting because they've been running so long. And the coach turns around, and he says, if we don't come together on this hallowed, same word, if we don't come together on this hallowed ground, we too will be destroyed. And that is really the crux of the film. The place where people died over racial strife this ground for that purpose is holy, he's saying. It's different. And, and his point is, honor the ground 
for the purpose that it was set apart. This ground was hallowed so that you wouldn't be fighting the battle that you are today is the point of that line. Same word, hallowed. So I want to set this up by saying that because what this passage doesn't say is holy is your name or hallowed is your name. Look at it. Do you see this? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Not holy is your name. It's not just an acknowledgement of God's character. It's not just an acknowledgement of God's holiness. That is absolutely true. It's hallowed, holy, be your name. In other words, Father, may you be worshiped, revered, spoken to the way you should be because of who you are. This is a different prayer than an acknowledgement of God's character. It's God, you deserve to be treated this way. Let it be so. It's a prayer that he will be treated with the highest honor, that he would be seen and treated as amazing because that's who he is. And listen, why is that prayer essential? Look in our world. Is God treated as hallowed in our world? This is the abyss, right? God's name is dragged, not revered. It's taken in vain, not taken to glory. God's reputation in this world is smeared, not praised. And so for us to pray, hallowed be your name, is a prayer to say, God, I pray that today there will be glory upon glory upon glory that is heaped in your direction. That people would live in light of the fact that you are worthy of all praise. There will be a day when that will happen. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. And that's why the prayer is essential today. That in our world, hallowed is not being his name. It's not praised in our world. But I'm going to suggest to you a more personal thing. Is it not just a prayer that his name will be hallowed, revered out there. It's a prayer that God's name will be hallowed right here. Right? There are things that you and I do every day in our hearts, in our minds, in our mouths, on our phones that are not hallowing the name of Jesus, that are not praising the name of our God. It's a petition that we would be. That's why in Psalm 23, verse 3, it says, He restores my soul, but listen, it says, He leads me in paths of righteousness. Why? For his name's sake. When you walk with Jesus, you hallow his name. And that's essential to the prayer. And if his name should be lifted high, then so should his kingdom, which is exactly where he goes next in verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done. That's two petitions. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. These petitions, two and three, they're short. Uh, And this petition, the first one, your kingdom come, is very simply, let Christ reign. Let Christ reign. Now, audience participation time. Has the kingdom come? Nod or shake. Has the kingdom come? It's a trick question. Yes and no. When Jesus first arrived on the scene, 85 times in the Gospels, he mentions the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. In fact, the kingdom of God was the first thing that he said had arrived. The starter pistol, For his ministry, in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, it says, the time was fulfilled. That sounds like it's here, right? The time was fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And I'm going to ask you again, has the kingdom come? Yeah, it has. And yet, no. Like I said, trick question, you lose either way. But you also win either way. Not yet has every knee bowed and every tongue confessed that Jesus is Lord. His kingdom has not come. 
Not yet has the enemy been thrown into the lake of fire. His kingdom is awaiting. Not yet has the king returned to his own, establishing his earthly kingdom. It is not of this world. It has come, and yet not yet. Not yet is suffering absent from your life. Not yet is sin a distant memory. He does not presently reign over all. And so why do we pray this? We pray that that day comes quickly. In fact, John, at the very end of Revelation, what does he say? Come, Lord Jesus. Your kingdom come. We're ready. It's good to pray that prayer. God, let your kingdom come. But in the meantime, let me not wait until the ushering in of your kingdom to live as if you're my king. For you to be a kingdom citizen does not mean that it starts once you get to glory. Today, are you an ambassador of your king? It says personally, will Christ reign in my life? Will I make him king today? And the way to do that is the next petition. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's desire, everything, it's perfectly done in heaven. We want it to be done here. Now, there's a difference between his unrevealed will and his revealed will. We say his will be done. There's, is that like his sovereign unrevealed will or is that his, his, his revealed will? And there's a difference between those two things and, and you know this. There's, there's one way of saying, hey, Lord will and I'm gonna eat me some cocoa puffs in the morning, okay? Maybe it'll happen, maybe it won't. You may die in your sleep, so then you won't, right? But you say Lord willing. So, hey, it's unrevealed to me, but I'm hoping that this is what happens next. I don't even have cocoa puffs in my house. It's just what I said at the time, all right? But that's his unrevealed will. Maybe it'll happen, maybe it won't. Lord willing, I'll get to work on time. Lord willing, I'll be safe. Lord willing, none of my family will get sick this week. Will it happen, will it not? We don't know. God does. It's an unrevealed will. And yet, there's another aspect of God's will that is revealed, right? That's where we get the words last will and testament from. Your will is written on a piece of paper, put in a safe away. It's your last will and testament. It's revealed. It is your clear list of desires. Here's what I mean by that. God has revealed his will to you, church. You don't have to ask God if it's his will that you pray, that you go to church, that you love your neighbor, that you discipline your children. Why? He's made that pretty clear, that that is his will for your life, his desire. It is God's will that we speak the truth in love, Ephesians 4.15, and that we do not commit adultery, 1 Corinthians 6.18, that we don't get drunk, Ephesians 5.18, that we don't gossip or we're not gluttons, we're not dishonest, impatient. That's God's will. And yet, all of those outcomes are desired, but not forced upon you and me. So back to the petition. What does this mean? Your will be done. It means, Father, let your desires for my life be my desires for my life. Let your desire that I flee from sin be my desire that I flee from sin. It's a prayer. Your will be done that I would obey you completely, joyfully, and immediately that I would obey you completely, joyfully, and immediately. It's a prayer for not just the individual, but also for mankind, in our nation, in our schools, in our families, in your child's classroom, in your child's friend group. God, let your desires be the desires of the people that take up those spaces. Your will be done. It's done there in heaven. Praise God for that. But we don't want to wait to see the desires and the will of our Father take place now. And we can be ushers of that, bringing that to be. Before prayer is about us, it must first be about God. And we see that, right? Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But then the prayer turns, and it turns to you and to me. The third thing that I want you to see is the prayer expresses trust. Prayer expresses trust. <clears throat> we see that in the next 
part. 40% of this prayer is about who God is before it's about what we need. But you must not say, I need these things before you say, you know what I need. That's why he says, your will be done. Then give us this day our daily bread. That's what verse 11 says. Give us this day our daily bread. Our Father has already met our greatest spiritual need. Praise Jesus. Forgiveness, resurrection, adoption. We've covered that, right? It's the core of what we, everything. It's the purpose of our lives. God has already given us our greatest spiritual need. But he cares for the daily needs of his own. And we are to pray daily, or to pray daily for those daily provisions. You see, daily bread for anybody that knows their Old Testament, which is most of your Bible, that should come to mind, bring to mind something. When Jesus says to Jewish people, give us this day our daily bread, their mind would immediately go somewhere. And where would it go? Manna. It would go to the Exodus in the wilderness when they did not have daily bread and they said, God, give us this day our daily bread. And you know what he did? He gave them that day their daily bread and the next day and the next day and the next day for a lot of days. He gave them their daily bread bread and the the central theme of that narrative of give us our daily bread manna in the wilderness is that god is going to provide daily it's trusting that the father will provide daily and what he told them in the wilderness he says listen you're going to be tempted there's gonna be a whole lot of manna on the ground you're going to be tempted to get enough for tomorrow and the next day you're going to get enough for the whole week but you know what he said get enough for today it will be there tomorrow Get today's portion. It will be there tomorrow. And exercise in trust. Don't store it up. Trust that I'm going to provide again. That's why it doesn't say give us this day our weekly bread. Give us this day our yearly bread. What does it say? Give us this day our daily bread. Daily expressed trust that God will provide. When we ask God for our daily bread, we humbly acknowledge him as the sole giver of all that we need. And not so much that we don't trust the giver. Too much can become a snare. So Proverbs 30, verse 8 says, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Too much is not always good. Some of you guys are parents of small children, or used to be parents of small children. There's no telling how many times every day that I use the word no with my little kids. I've got four kids now, six and under. One of them can't speak yet, and that's probably a good thing. But I say no a lot. They ask a million things that me and Brooke both have to say no to. Just this week, we um, had some birthday cake, and then we left the place where the birthday cake was. We're getting on the road, and we pass a Sonic. And Shiloh, my oldest, she's six, says, can we have slushies? I was like, no. You're packed with sugar. You're already out of control, child. You know? It's like, are you crazy? And then that night, she'll say, my stomach hurts. I'm like, huh. How about that? How about you don't eat so much sugar? But the part of my rot more as a family or as a father is to say, no, when it's necessary. You don't need this much. You can have this much. That's why I don't tell them they can go on walks without supervision. They get hit by a car or get snatched up. I mean, you have to say no. I think my six-year-old even asked if she could drive my car one time. <laughs> no. Because I know what's best for her. She also asked if she could fry her own eggs on the stove. You know what she said? Had the audacity to say, Daddy, I know how. You know, here, yeah, go for it. Why don't you start the fire with some gasoline while you're at it? (laughs) The answer to those questions is obviously no. Why? 
I give her eggs. I take her places in the car. I give her sweets whenever I find that it's appropriate to do so. Brooke and I, are, we try to have a controlled environment. It's a circus. But the thing that I want you to take away from that is, as their father, I know a healthy diet of everything they need and don't need. Food, screen time, baths, supervision, modesty, speech. Children lack wisdom. Do you know what the difference is between a four-year-old and a 40-year-old? It's infinitely less of a difference than the one between you and God. Tim Keller says that worry is spiritual four-year-olds believing we know how our lives have to go and thinking that God is not going to get it right. He says bitterness is spiritual four-year-olds not getting what we want and believing that God got it wrong. The prayer for daily bread, the petition, is an all-out assault on worrisome and bitter tendencies. You think that's a good prayer to pray? I'd say. It's expressed trust. It's a faith choice. It's Father, meet my bare necessities and keep me mindful that you are my real necessity. You know, we shake our heads at hard-headed toddlers, but are you a worrier? Are you bitter that God got it wrong? Do you trust him for your daily bread? Are you willing to go with less because you know that he won't let you go without. Give us this day our daily bread. It's trusting our Father who will care for our needs. He's our lifeline, and he loves us. The fourth thing is to seek heart alignment. <clears throat> it seeks heart alignment. Prayer with our Father seeks heart alignment. Recalibration would be another word. Verse 12 says, so it says, give us this, uh, this day our daily bread. The verse 12 says, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, you may have heard it said, don't pray for forgiveness. You only pray for forgiveness once. Whenever we pray a sinner's prayer or give our lives to Jesus, you only pray for forgiveness that one time because your sins are forgiven. And that is true. Your sins are forgiven that one time. When we say, hey, maybe you could pray for forgiveness then, but after that you just confess your sins. Listen, we'll make this real clear. You pray for forgiveness from your sins one time. That is true. But we must pray for daily forgiveness. And this is what I mean by it. And you can phrase it as confession. That's fine. We do not pray for ongoing justification. We do not pray to ongoingly be declared right in the sight of a holy God. We don't pray daily that God would save me from my sins. The payment satisfying the great debt of sin is a one-time transaction. Praise the Lord. But Ephesians 2.13 adds to that and says, You were once far off. You who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. You know what that doesn't say? It doesn't say you've been brought near, but you should pray each day that God won't alienate you again because of how often you'll mess up. That's not what it says. Jesus is not instructing us to daily ask to be justified because that is a one-time event. Forgive us of our debts is not a prayer for the saving forgiveness of sin. Rather, to pray like Jesus in this sense is to petition each day for restoration of your personal relationship with God when that relationship has been hindered or clouded by sin. And anybody that's married or has ever had a best friend that you've sinned against knows what this is. When you sin against your spouse and do something that is just an especially big elephant in the room, you can't talk about this thing without first talking about this thing. You can't talk about that thing without first engaging this thing. We call that the elephant in the room, right? 
The reason it's like that is because when you sin against someone you love, there's something that's hovering, a dark cloud in that relationship. And you get it and say, here it is, it was wrong, forgive me of that. That's what we do with God. God, there's this cloud. I have unconfessed sin and it's here. And I just want you to know that I see that, I know that you see that, I know that you've justified me and forgiven me of that, but I'm praying now that you would restore the joy of our relationship because it's a cloud and it's hanging. This is the aspect of this prayer. And we know sin damages daily fellowship with God, has a way of mourning your soul because it grieves God's spirit and so grieves your spirit. And yet we know that God stands ready to receive, restore, and embrace us. Praise God. He stands ready to receive, restore, and embrace us. But there's part B of this connection in verse 12. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Here's what that means. Father, stand ready to receive, restore, and embrace us as we stand, and asking for help on this one, ready to receive, restore, and embrace those that sin against us. It means that you and I must not Place your standard for retribution toward those that have sinned against you higher than God has toward you who have sinned against him. Now, that doesn't mean that you just act like nothing happened. That's not what it means. Someone may have to earn back your trust. Please hear this. Think of the person right now that you're like this with. If they've sinned against you, you're right that they should have to earn back your trust. If it's a child, absolutely. Girlfriend, boyfriend, spouse, they may have to earn it back. But please hear this. Someone may have to earn back your trust, but they need not earn your forgiveness. Those are different. They may need to earn back your trust. In fact, I'd encourage it. But they must not have to earn back your forgiveness. Reconciliation and moving forward takes two. Forgiveness takes one. And nothing can be farther from a gospel-transformed heart than a heart that is unwilling to forgive a sinner. Is it harder to appease your wrath than it was to appease God's? You think you got a problem? I'd say so. The petition is, very simply, make my heart like yours, God. Make me ready to receive, restore, and embrace those that have wronged me. That's a very good horizontal prayer for the people around us, I think. Especially as a dad, as a, as a husband. Yeah. The fifth thing. Prayer safeguards and stretches. It safeguards and stretches. When I mean by stretches, I mean that it, it stretches us. It, it, it grows us. It safeguards us. It also stretches us. It grows us. In verse 13, it says, <clears throat> finally, this is the last verse we'll look at today, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, this is a classic positive negative plus and minus situation. It says, do this, don't do this. Lead us not into temptation. Do that, or, or, or sorry, that's the negative. Lead us not into temptation, don't do that, but deliver us from evil. Positively, please do that, don't do this, and don't lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, you may hear that and say, God tempts us? No. no the Bible's very clear that God doesn't tempt us, but it does clearly imply that God may lead us into temptation. We know that God doesn't tempt us. James 1.13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. 
You see, God doesn't tempt us, but he permits us to walk into temptations at times. You see, sin doesn't occur without temptation, so it's a good thing to flee temptation or to ask to be guarded from temptation. But at the same time, please hear this. God uses temptations, testings, to sharpen and strengthen our faith, so we should trust the heart of our Father in all things. Again, I gotta go with parenting here. We're talking about the Father. As a parent, there are times that I can see, especially my oldest two, my oldest son, he's got a temper, and that's gonna be a vice for him, but he's also very passionate, so that'll work out. But I see the fight coming. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? You can see it coming a mile away. She says, you're stupid. And then he doesn't really argue with words, he just argues with his hands. (laughs) And you see it coming, you know. I did it first, and that doesn't sit well with him. You see that coming, and as a father, you know what I could do? Eh, eh, stop. Both, you go over here, you go over here. Don't even think about it. Or, and that does happen at times, or I could say, go ahead. You're going to have to be disciplined. Go ahead. Figure it out. Sin against one, each, one another, and then we'll make it a teaching moment. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? It's why sometimes it's good for your kid's hand to get a little burned so that they know, don't touch that. It's hot. They don't believe you until they feel the consequences of that. God does that to us, church. By God's grace, many times, many, many times, he protects us from temptations. And we should pray, God, keep me from any situation or I may fold like a lawn chair under pressure. Keep me from that. But God, in the times that you do lead me to temptation, deliver me from evil. And use that moment to grow me, not to harm me. Do you think that I ever let my kids bear the consequences because I don't like them, because I hate them, because I want their harm? Do you think that God lets you walk into temptation because he doesn't like you, because he wants to hurt you, because he wants to harm you? He loves you. But sometimes the best way to grow us is to stretch us. Discipline is a good teacher. God, lead us down to temptation. But when you do, grow us and deliver us. We have biblical examples of this. I'll just give you one. Job chapter 1. God is speaking with the tempter. And he says, yeah, he's not that tough, Job. God says, have you considered my servant, Job? Go at him. Horrible things. Horrible consequences. A devastating environment that Job is now placed into. But by the end of the book, what happens? His love for the Father grows. It grows. It grows. God does that. He doesn't lead us into situations to harm us. He leads us into situations that we may be growing in our affection for the Father. A good, loving Father allows temptation for the sole purpose of testing and disciplining his own for their good, not their harm. That's why James 1, verses 2 and 3 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Why? For you know that the, tested, the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Not harm. It produces steadfastness. It's your lifeline safeguards and stretches it's a good prayer now there are so many questions about this commitment to prayer that i haven't answered you may be wondering or or maybe come into today and said he's going to talk about how long we're supposed to pray or how often we're supposed to pray where are we supposed to do it is it supposed to be allowed or silent what are all the rules i didn't cover a lot of those questions i didn't mean to but i'll cover some of them how often every day how long as long as it takes where, where, 
wherever you are. Give him your full attention, your full affection. Allowed or silent, both. There's a lot of different ways to do this thing. I didn't set out to answer every question. I set out to call you to commit. I set out to call you to do something about it. I don't know about you, but we've been looking at Nehemiah on Wednesdays. We talked about how the law, God's word, is a mirror. Today, this is a mirror. And when I hold this mirror up to my face, it's what I started with today. When I hold it up to my prayer life, do not like what about you exposes us does it not I didn't set out to answer every question but listen if we are going to be committed followers of Jesus one of our core commitments must be that we are people of prayer we major on a lot of things that we should minor on and we minor on prayer when it has to be a major how can we go an entire day and say a blessing for our food and never bear our hearts before our Father? How can we go an entire day and put our head on our pillow and say, I never spoke to my Father today? How can we do that? How can I do that? You have a Father. And the frame of your prayer life is not the burden of a taskmaster. The, the fuel of your prayer life, the frame, it is a loving Father who wants you. He wants you. He wants to be near to you. He wants you to pray and live a life that is God-centric. To say, Father, may you be worshipped, revered, spoken to the way that you should because you're hallowed, you're holy. Let me live like that. It means that you trust his provision. You understand that his wisdom is greater than yours. That you're crucifying worry and you're crucifying bitterness. It means that we are seeking to have a heart that is aligned with his. That we treat people the way that God treats people. He loves them. We don't hold people to a standard of retribution that God has never held toward you. A proper prayer life is fueled by seeking to be safeguarded, but trusting our Father. If you want to know how to do it, I'll give you a quick, very quick model. If you want to write these words down, you go for it. I didn't know if I was going to share this just for the sake of time, but I will just real quick. Uh, and I have before. Him, me, them, us. Him, me, them, us. It's a, it's a quick formula. And if you want to pray for 10 minutes, go two and a half minutes each. That, that adds up to 10. If you want to pray for 30 minutes, I can't do that math off the top of my head, but you can figure it out. It's a formula. Him, me, them, us. You first begin with him. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Whatever it looks like to pray like that, do that. Then you turn to me. There's the, third three, the, third perdition, the second three petitions. Talk about your daily bread. Talk about how to treat other people, aligning your heart with God. Talk about being safeguarded from the temptations of your day. Pray for your life them, the other people. Pray for your family. Pray for your kids. Pray for your spouse. Pray for your enemies. And I don't mean that they would suffer punishment. I mean that they would be snatched by the loving hands of our Father. Pray for them. Pray for our leaders. Pray for the government. Pray for other world governments. Pray for world peace. Pray for other people. 
Pray for your schools. Pray for your kids' classroom. Pray for your kids' teachers. Pray for the bullies that they have to encounter every day. Pray for them. Him, me, them, and then pray for us, your church. Pray that this kingdom movement of believers at fellowship would yearn after the heart of our God. Him, me, them, us. Set a goal and go for it. Commit. No longer approach prayer like a who wants to be a millionaire contestant, that it's a lifeline. I got this. Oh, oh, there's a problem. I need to phone a friend on this one. You are an astronaut floating in the abyss if you are not tethered to the arms of your father. You have no spiritual oxygen to live life in your lungs. You have no spiritual gravity to keep your feet planted except for the lifeline, oxygen in your lungs, gravity for your feet. Don't float through life in the abyss expecting to stay anchored to your father. Pray for him. Seek him. Tether yourself to him. And finally, all of these things that have been said can only be said for those that have been adopted into his family. You may have come into this place today and you can never say confidently that he's your father. You can never say confidently that I'm his son and daughter. If that's you, I got good news. The father who longs for you isn't waiting at the door of your heart with a switch or a belt. He gave the punishment to somebody else. He poured out the punishment on his son Jesus when he bore the wrath that you may bear righteousness. If you can't confidently call him father today, this is very simple. Ask him to be your father. Confess that you cannot earn his favor. Believe that Jesus has gone in your place, that you may join him in his, and give your life to him today. There's no show about it. We're not like the Pharisees that are actors. We're blood-bought children crossing over from wrath to sonship, from punishment to adoption. And today can be the day that you can say confidently, our Father.